You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, possibly for the last time, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Matt. Hi, I'm Lee. I'm Simon. Um, oh, uh, before we get into it, something that came up on Twitter that I replied to, and then I reposted on Facebook, were somebody on my Twitter feed, I can't remember who it was. Oh, is this, oh, what, is, what are you going oh, for? Because I, I think I, I read something from you on Facebook today <laughs> that looked very dull. Is this what it is? Oh, yeah. oh I know the one. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I missed it. Yeah, but you find everything dull, Matt. Is this the format issue? Yes. Well, okay. okay. Oh. Oh. Well, somebody was talking about watching The Prisoner on Blu-ray, and I'm talking about watching it in 16 by 9 And then there, it didn't happen, but it often does happen, the whole debate about stuff that was made in 4 by 3 and uh, stretching it to fill a 16 by 9 screen versus zooming in to fill a 16 by 9 screen Versus watching it with black bars at either side, so you're not filling a 16 by 9 screen. It's like Brexit all over again. <laughs> well, you talked at Hot no end contested. of length about Brexit. Yeah, I was and you so, talked at was no being, end of length about Richard Nixon last week. I'm being sarcastic. It's not like Brexit. <clears throat> I think no. I think okay. it's an interesting debate. Okay. Scientifically, morally, philosophically, and aesthetically. Okay. As human beings, we are as nature has evolved as predators, which means that we have two forward-facing eyes at either side of our head. Oh, Matt, for crying out loud. No, I'm listening. We're I'm having listening. a discussion. Okay. Can we just have a discussion? <laughs> okay. And we don't have a probic vent like you, Matt. Okay. No, it's not a probic vent. It's <laughs> jug handles for ears, isn't it, with Matt? <clears throat> okay, gone. I'm listening. We have two forward-facing eyes at either side of our head. This is why, when we write and when we read in books and whatever else, we read from side to side, because naturally the motion of our eyes is from side to side. So, scientifically speaking, if you're talking about what people look at, expressions like peripheral vision generally means at one side or the other, rather than above or below. And if you look... You know, if you just stare straight ahead, your eyes will naturally and subconsciously tend to take more notice of the things that are at either side of you rather than things that are above or below you. And most of the time, when you're talking, sitting, walking, doing whatever, you'll have other people around you who are all on the same level as you. And if there's more than one, you won't be looking directly at everybody, but those people will be to the sides of you. So your eyes... And your brain is naturally attuned to seeing things side to side. Russell T. Davis, when he was making Doctor Who, one of the things he said is, we do everything from side to side. I want to get us going up and down because that will introduce something into the series that you don't tend to see in drama. Hence lots of lift action sequences. Lots of lifts and lots of running up and down stairs. The point of all this is, a 4 by 3 picture is... As near as damn it, a square picture, that's not a natural image for us to look at. When you look at the words on a page, the page might be longer than it is wide, 
But actually, when you're looking at a page, you're looking at it from side to side rather than from top to bottom. So you're even treating something that's longer than it is wide as something that's wider than it is long because that's how you're focusing on it. I happened to um, work in an electrical store when we there was a changeover when widescreen TVs first came in. Mm. <clears throat> one of the selling points and the one of the things that people never believed was that TVs would have always been 16 by 9 if they could have made them like it. Yeah, yeah. There's the limitations of the cathode ray tube. Mm. So it was only because technology moved on that they were able to do wider screens. Yeah. So they would have always been like that. So then you had the whole thing of people coming in, usually farmers because I lived in Cornwall, <laughs> saying, um, it makes them all squat and flat. <laughs> well, and this is the thing. When 16 by 9 TVs came in, a lot of yeah. films that had been on VHS in 4 by 3 mm. were suddenly appearing in 16 by 9 And one of the first reactions of people to this was, where's this extra picture come from? Because these films weren't panned and scanned in 4 by 3 but instead they use a process in cinema called masking, where, I mean, a lot of people would know this, but some people won't, where, because film is 4 by 3 what you do in the camera is you have a 4 by 3 monitor which has two black lines on it, like an inch, a couple of inches away from the top and a couple of inches away from the bottom, and what's within those two lines is what that will appear on the cinema screen, and the rest of it is stuff that will be masked off in the projector. So most widescreen films are actually made in 4 by 3 So the old VHS videos would have the whole 4 by 3 picture, and very often you would get, for example, the microphone, the boom microphone, appearing in the top of the picture, because it wouldn't be there once it was masked off for cinema projection. But when it was back on VHS or being shown on the telly in 4 by 3 all of a sudden those bits of the picture are back on the screen. And so you get things like the boom mic. The relevant point to all this is, not as a viewer, but as a programme maker, as the person who's holding the camera, and with Doctor Who, it's not so much about the cinematographer deciding where things are going to be in the frame, but just literally where the cameraman, especially in the 1960s, can get the camera. So the cameraman is doing the framing. It's just a natural instinct to frame things so that the important parts of the picture are beside each other rather than layered one on top of another. So very, very often, I would say way more than 90% of the time, by masking off 4 by 3 Doctor Who, you're not actually losing anything of importance at all. Sometimes you'll miss the tops of people's heads. But let's face it, if you go to a movie, quite often the cameraman, if he wants an extreme close-up, you won't have the tops of the head there anyway because you're focusing on the face. So actually watching Doctor Who in 16 by 9 as long as you zoom rather than stretch, makes it a more cinematic experience. And actually, I've got to say, when 16 by 9 tellies first came in, what, nearly 20 years ago now, I actually watched the entire series in 16 by 9 and thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> and probably once, maybe twice in each story, there'd suddenly be a scene where somebody is at the top of the frame and their heads disappeared. But it happens so rarely, you barely notice it. Does that mean in Chinese TV and film then that uh, all the action's going down the screen? Because of the way they write. The way they write and read, yeah. 
I wouldn't have thought so. Who knows? Maybe there's a difference there. Just I don't know enough Chinese just TV. Just and... wondering if a lot of Chinese film and TV may be looking at screens differently. If you're, if you know, because your idea is that we go from left to right because that's how don't we write, they that's how we doing read. columns? Almost like columns, yeah. Like, but it's going like down. Newspaper. Do, 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 no, read it yeah, across, do you? but you say it goes yeah. down. But it, with yeah. manga, you read the book backwards. So yeah, start at the end of the DVD and work backwards. Well, they don't watch their films backwards, though. No, no. Well, you'll find out, won't you, Simon? I will. We'll talk about that later. Um, Interestingly, when there was the changeover from 4x3 to 16x9, there was one film, A Bug's Life, and they did a double-sided disc. Mm -hmm. One side was 4x3 and the other was 16x9, but they actually formatted it and reformatted the... They composited the pictures differently so that it would work. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting. It wasn't even 16... Or is it it 16x9 or is that film actually 2.35? I can't Ooh. remember because I had because when sixteen two point three five is, is that's the cinemascope ratio, isn't it? Yeah, when because just by coincidence, when widescreen tellies were coming in, I remember being in the Panasonic shop and oh, they right. actually had a two point three five ratio telly. So it still had borders. It still had borders on almost yeah, everything you watched. We had complaints. Somebody watched a film and they still had black borders, even though they spent all the money on a widescreen telly. But it just so happened that. <laughs> When I went in the shop and saw this telly and thought, no, that would just be ridiculous. The film that was on it was Bugs Life. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I think it is 16 by 9, so I think they must have been losing picture at the top that. and the bottom. I went to the Panasonic shop in Guildhall Shopper Centre, mm-hmm. and it was a Bugs Life that was playing for um, virtually the whole of that summer or autumn, whatever it was. Well, this conversation's evolved into <laughs> real <laughs> philosophical stuff now. Pre- pel- predating widescreen tellies, of course, I had my... I bought the Star Wars VHS box set in widescreen, so it was really thin on the screen. Mm-hmm. But it was brilliant because well, I, because at least I wasn't missing anything. That's the way I saw it. Well, then the thing is, anamorphic lenses came in. <clears throat> While we're on this subject, this is not the subject of the podcast, by the way. <sighs> Can you not just join in rather well, than tutting? Like, so and so my and my stuff? issue is, I don't think the ratio you watch something in makes it more or less cinematic because I think we automatically adjust to what's, or I automatically adjust to however I watch it. So if it's stretched, then yes, it would look weird if I just watched something that wasn't stretched beforehand. But my brain automatically adjusts for it; it's fine. Or if it's Zoomed, yes, that's fine. But you watch or films and you three. write about films. You must know about the aesthetics yes, of I picture do. composition Yes, I know about stuff. the aesthetics of picture composition. I know about the frame ratios, but they're not all that interesting to me. I don't think that's what makes a cinematic experience. I think it's the scale of the story. I think it's the type of direction. I think it's to do with the narrative. I think it's to do with the environment you're watching it. The length, But the, the aesthetics of the, of the picture composition is part of the grammar of the narrative. The aesthetics of the picture composition, yes, but the frame ratio is only a small part of the aesthetics of the picture composition. Yeah, so you're talking f- about a small part of IMAX. Well, that's a different subject. Mm. But but again, IMAX is only IMAX if you watched in an IMAX cinema, mm. Mm. really. So, I mean, yeah, I I agree with you. It's interesting. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure how far you can get other than I'll give it a go. Well, you know, interestingly, I've only just got the Power of the Daleks Blu-ray, mm-hmm. but I watched half of it in black and white and half of it in colour, mm. and the colour was far more enjoyable, mm. I thought. Oh, I haven't seen I it in colour yet. I don't know why. Um, for, 
well not more enjoyable but it, it kept, held my interest more partly because life is in color so if really? you unless you're a dog well if you <coughs> take the missing episodes and you've got the soundtracks in the same way as when you listen to the soundtrack without the pictures you're missing out on part of the experience Exactly the same way, if you watch something in black and white, you're mm. missing out on part of the experience. Yeah, there's an argument to say... Especially, people... cla- especially cartoons. Mm. But black and white can be a different experience, which suggests age. So that's why Schindler's List is in black and white, because it's trying to ape the the neorealist Italian films, which was obviously by necessity in black and white. So Spielberg <clears throat> felt that real came with black and white real for the 1940s came with black and white but that's kind of like a layer of unreality over realism when when i was a kid i literally thought that films that were in black and white were because life was in black Mm. and white (laughs) yeah so so watching power of the daleks maybe animated in color isn't so jarring but if you saw it with the actual footage Mm. in color then you'd think this is very strange patrick carlton's in color this isn't right You'd adjust, though, because our brains well, adjust quite quickly the, to ratios and, yeah, and colour. And... Earlier ones, like the invasion, and that, I didn't. I thought it looked really lovely. Mm. But for some reason, this one seemed to work better in colour. Yeah, whereas that Mind of Evil works better in black and white. Oh, okay. I found. There's, and this is yeah. where I'm gradually getting to. There's an argument that was made when Power of the Dalek, when they found out, you know, when the forums and whatnot found out, that there was going to be a colour version of Power of the Daleks. They said, but they deliberately made it in black and white. Why would you want to do a colour version that goes against the artistic integrity of the people who are making it? To which there's a counter-argument. There was no artistic integrity. They were using black and white film cameras, so that's what we got. Black and, wh- black and white TV cameras, so that's mm. what we got. A black and white television programme. If they'd had colour cameras, they would have made it in colour. If they'd have had 16 by 9 televisions that have made it in 16 by 9 there's no artistic integrity to something that's done by necessity on the other hand you can take that necessity and make a virtue of it by if you're working in black and white by using strong contrasting lighting so that for instance the lack of color is not an issue because you're painting with the shades of gray or with potentially the lack of shades of grey if you're using very strong lighting and contrast. You can use the medium artistically, but that's not your choice. A whole genre would be mitigated if colour had come in in the 1940s and 50s because you just wouldn't get film noir. So film noir was a whole genre predicated on the limitations of the technology. Except in the 1970s, there was a renaissance, and then the 1980s, a yes. renaissance of film noir in colour. Yes. Which showed that if you did it the right way, and going back to the point about Power of the Daleks, if you do it in the right way, if you do it sympathetically to the material, yeah. colour can work just as well as black and white, because sometimes it's about the muted colours against the bright colours. But they weren't as good. And it wasn't different. Um, it wasn't different. It was neo-noir, which is a yeah. different genre. So they, but it was essentially kind of, yeah. an updating of the same thing. Yeah, which showed yes, <coughs> the film noirs were deliberately made yeah. using very starkly <coughs> contrasting yeah. 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 <coughs> shades. Yeah, Do but that would Doctor Who have been <coughs> um, as popular or as famous or as big if it had been in colour from the outset? 
more famous, more big, more because episodes would have survived. a lot of people did say in the 60s that the black <coughs> and white, ha- no, that kind of, it did hide a multitude of sins because of the budget. Well, if it had been made in colour, it would have been made probably with a bigger budget. You wouldn't have. They wouldn't have had cardboard Daleks for a start, would they? Mm. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> well, they I don't would... think it would have shown that much difference. Because no. you can hide things with colour as well, if you think about it. Plus, so if it had been high definition from the beginning, then they might have been struggling. But if you're working... <laughs> that's what Moffat yeah, yeah. struggled with. If you're working in colour, or if you're working in black and white, if you're working in high definition, or you're working in standard definition, if you're working in 4 by 3 or if you're working in 16 by 9 you adapt the material to suit the format you're working in. Mm. So it's easy to say, oh, would Doctor Who have looked the same in colour as it does in black and white, which is hiding that multitude of sins. Those sins probably wouldn't have been there if it had been in colour, because they'd have found a slightly different way to do it, and they'd have told slightly different stories. There would have been slightly different productions. Mm. And actually, you've got the answer, really, to the question, what if Doctor Who had been made like the Avengers? Because Spearhead from Space is that answer. If they'd yeah, done it all that, we would have got Spearhead from Space. But Spearhead from Space, yeah, shows you what what it would have looked like because Mm. Spearhead from Space is essentially a videotape black and white studio production done entirely on colour in film outdoors. And that shows you what Doctor Who would have looked like throughout the 1960s because there's no more budget in Spearhead from Space than there was in all those other things, really. No, but when you go into studios with John Pertwee in in his second season... It suddenly does look a well, little bit cheaper, doesn't it? Than well, maybe from his very the... second story in his first season, Silurians mm. well, yeah, is back in the even, studio. Well, yeah, even then, actually. Yes, it does, because they're back in the studio, so yeah. suddenly they're doing it back in the studio way. But if they'd have done it all on film, they could have told the same story all on film and it would have looked like Spearhead from Space. Mm. Uh, and eventually, to get to where I was going, this is all about the intellectual snobbery that surrounds something that was made to be enjoyed on a superficial level, but has achieved um, enough popularity to have amongst those people who identify as its fandom have achieved a level of cultness that means that we still look at these things decades later despite the fact that they were made to be disposable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, go on. Well, that's the other, I mean, I don't... I, there is intellectual snobbery, but there's also a natural and understandable desire to see as much as possible and not to I'm see... I'm not talking about the size of the picture because, anymore, Matt. Because, because they were disposed of. So they are now... In fact, the the sort of the, the transitory nature of them have made them more precious, not less precious. I've moved on that. I'm okay. not talking about that anymore. Okay. I'm talking about the fact that a few months ago we did a podcast called What is Doctor Who For? Right. If I think it was called that. Yeah. Where we talked about what the people making Doctor Who were thinking about what they were making. Right. And we said at the end of that we'd come back at some point in the future and ask what fans want of Doctor Who. Okay. And, well, we haven't prepared this. We were going to do Curse of the Black Spot, but Lee was half an hour late, which didn't leave us enough time to talk about the Curse of the Black Spot. No. So instead, and I'm not proposing we do this subject now, what I'm proposing is we do half an hour on this subject now, 
throw a few ideas around, have a bit of a discussion about it, and then ask the people who listen to this podcast to write in with responses to the things we've said or suggestions of their own and do this subject properly in two or three weeks' time with the feedback. What's our email address? Blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk or find us on Facebook and whatever you do, don't ask me if I'm fit and healthy, which somebody <laughs> did this week, which was really bizarre. Really? Oh, did you not see that? No, you did. Is that because you've been wheezing? No, some no somebody who's never even heard of the Blue Box podcast and hadn't followed the oh, page right, just you know, randomly yeah, yeah. messaged in. <laughs> That's brilliant. It's so funny. And literally, his first line was just hi. So I'm like, and you know, Facebook tells you off for not responding to people. So I just put hello. And he goes, I can't remember exactly what he said. Are you fit? Are you healthy? And I'm like, well, I'm all right. <laughs> and then his next question is, tell me about your... What was it? I can't remember. Tell me about your mind. Is your world a real world? Or all kinds of weird stuff like yeah. this. Okay. Sure it wasn't a pot. Are you, are you strong? And there's a little emoticon of a, you, of a Yeah, muscle. that's right. Are you strong with a muscly arm? And I'm like, yeah, not really. So then a few days later, he comes back. And he says, hi. And I said, hello, thinking, oh, God, this is going to happen again. So I said to him, do you like Doctor Who? He says, yeah, I like all of them. And I'm like... Okay, which ones in particular? And he's like, "F you," <laughs> straight away, <laughs> straight away. And then, spell, spell one, by the way. And then I was like, "Oh, I'm not entirely sure I've heard of that one." And then underneath, <laughs> there's a little bit of gibberish. Then "F you, F you, F you." So I just—he was from somewhere in Scandinavia or something. I don't know. No. So I just put, "Oh, I think my Facebook translator has turned itself off." Which is, I'd stuck his messages in the spam box. Yeah. Yeah. That was... Uh, Could have been a bot, wouldn't it? No, no it wasn't a clever. bot. Yeah. No, too random. No, too, too random. random. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, a bot wouldn't do all no. the... Are oh, you strong or whatever it was. Just somebody spamming you. But uh, it was very funny the way you responded. Well, he, I noticed on his profile that he put down he works at Facebook. In other words, he just <laughs> spends far too much time on his Facebook. And when he's got nobody to talk to, he just randomly looks somebody up. And annoys them. Yeah. He tries to... Um, so the subject of, um, the, the screen ratios, which just happened to come up this morning, which put me in mind of doing this tonight. The reason why is because what we're talking about with fans is a sort of proprietorship. And this is the thing about what I was saying to you, Lee, when we were talking about The Last Jedi and you made that comment about, oh, I can see what you're doing there, talking about the director, well done, or whatever, almost as if you were congratulating the director on doing the right thing in terms of what Star Wars should be, which subconsciously showed that you had an idea about what Star Wars should be, Mm. and you were congratulating the director when he was agreeing with your idea of what Star Wars should be. And then during the points in the film at which he wasn't, doing what you thought Star Wars should be, then he was up for being criticised. This is the point. When we made the episode about what is Doctor Who, and we talked about the people who made it, not just the directors and writers and producers, but also the corporation that makes it, 
essentially the conclusion we came to was that it's light entertainment program stuck in a light entertainment slot on a Saturday night that's not meant to be taken too seriously but is essentially just like a travelogue type program but about alien worlds with bizarre lurid uh, characters and aliens and monsters and stuff that people can just sit down and pay no attention to and every now and again look up at the screen and say oh there's a Dalek isn't the Dalek fun oh there's a monster look at this ridiculous costume or they've done that bit well or occasionally every now and again get a bit scared or suddenly think wow how are these characters going to get out of this situation it's exactly the same now the people who make Doctor Who now make it for exactly the same reasons as they did then not for it to be taken seriously Mm. this is kind of the point Doctor Who's not to be taken seriously but then in the Early 1980s, something happened. And this, the, the 1980s, in terms of Doctor Who and fandom versus production, is generally remembered in terms of John Nathan Turner's The Memory Cheats comment, which only brushes the surface of what the debate is actually about. John Nathan Turner to respond to fans who were saying Doctor Who's not as good as it used to be. And John Nathan Turner is absolutely the wrong person to talk about this because he was talking only about what it looks like on a production level rather than whether the stories were fulfilling and fulfilling the remit of the programme. So when he said the memory cheats, yes, of course, it's as good as it used to be. And if you were ever to see something like Death to the Daleks, you'd find out just how bad it used to look. But at least the story of Death to the Daleks is simple and engaging and entertaining, whereas something like, say, for instance, Ark of Infinity patently isn't. And that's where Doctor Who was going wrong in the 1980s, if you consider that it was going wrong in the 1980s. But crucially, what happened in the 1980s, after fandom organised itself in the 1970s, and that still wasn't the moment where the balance tipped, in the 1980s, you started to get repeat series of things like Thunderbirds on BBC Two and Channel 4, famously when Channel 4 came in, would often show lots of repeats from the 60s and 70s mm. because they needed to fill their programming time. Space, yeah. They didn't have the money to make 12 hours of days worth of programs themselves, so mm. they would buy a lot of stuff in cheap that they could just show to keep the picture on the screen during the times when they didn't have the money. At the same time as that was happening... Then you get VHS tapes starting to come out of the series we do remember, Doctor Who, and eventually things like Blake 7, Survivors was the big one for me. Those were the ones I watched over and over again. All these series started to come out on VHS tape. That's not the moment at which you say the memory cheats, because this is what it used to look like, this is what it looks like now, this is what the stories used to be about, this is what the stories are about now. The memory cheats is not what happened then. What happened then is fans were able to buy the programme and experience the programme out of sequence, experience the programme at a time of their own choosing, such that the programme that's going out on air, which is being made as all these fans are owning and watching all these other things that were made years and decades ago, they're 
arrives a dichotomy where the things that were made that you can sit down and put in your machine and watch are set in stone. That was made before you had any awareness of the facts of the of the things that go into a production. The things that are being produced now, while you're watching Death of the Daleks on a VHS tape, you know who's writing it. You've got previews in Doctor Who magazine. You've got news stories about the fact that, I don't know, Johnny Burns doing a story that might have a returning Time Lord in it, coming up six months down the line. You form an idea in your head about the things that are coming up where you think, oh, well, it should do this. It could do that. It might do this. I'd like if it did that. And while that program is still being produced, all of those different elements, all of those different thoughts are things that can be changed. Not by you, although you would obviously like to be able to have a part of that process, but until that program's actually in the can and finished, mm. at any moment, any one of those things potentially could alter. So you're watching Death of the Daleks on a VHS tape as something that was produced, that is historic, that is unalterable, at the same time as you're watching Ark of Infinity on the telly, and you're aware that the entire time that was being made people were making decisions about its production, exactly the same decisions that people were making about Death of the Daleks, but you're making they're making those decisions while you're aware of them. Mm -hmm. And so you've suddenly got a checklist of, well, they made the wrong decision on that. Well, I can see why they did the decision they made on that, but it's not the decision I would have. So this sense of ownership of the programme, which is partly to do with owning the VHS tapes, so you actually feel like you're having a, a a financial and physical part of the process doesn't translate into what's coming up on the television screen at the same time as all these things that are happening on the television and not making the decisions that you think they should be necessarily making while you're in a position to know that those decisions are being made. Did I explain that for people to understand? Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah, yeah, so far so good. So this is the world we live in now, where the programme is still being made, essentially with caveats, like the people who make the programme now, you know, know what happens on social media, get feedback from fandom, so will sometimes change the way they do things according to the feedback that they're getting. But essentially, they're making Doctor Who the same way they've always been, They've got X number of episodes to get out and that's what they do. And they've got an idea about what those stories are going to be and those are the stories they make. Something else that accentuates that is also that we're all incredibly more well informed on how these mm. programmes are made. Just so, and, and, and the enigma of Doctor Who being what it is that the, um, the British in, uh, is kind of established thing that it is, is that you get a lot of people coming up through the ranks and, and starting to work in television because of Doctor Who. And unfortunately, the side effect of that is you get an awful lot of inverted commas experts about how a programme is made. So you that... get a hell of a lot of jealousy. Why are these fans making this programme and I'm not? Mm. And, you know, and obviously... Not least Chris Chibnall, who famously yeah. went on 
went on television to complain about the way that Doctor Who was being made in the 1980s. Mm. And now gets right a chance wrongly, to, but yeah. Makes, yeah. It's not a coincidence also that television studies as an academic discipline came into its own in the 1980s because for the same reasons you get VHS started appearing and um, more information and at that point intelligent, intelligent fans are always that kind of crossover between academics and fans and they're the ones who hopefully tend to keep a bit more of a a, a kind of an open mind about well, I would hope the other end of that is that we will progress because we're in that middle period of people starting to learn about the processes that at some point we reach the end stage where they're educated enough that they accept that when somebody's in the driving seat, they are the ones driving. Mm-hmm. And you've got to let them drive. But they also... You, you're like the nagging backseat driver. But the people in the driving seat do respond to what people mm. say mm. outside. I yeah. mean, not, and not always fans. I mean, the Tenth Planet, the... The first Doctor appeared in the Christmas special because a fan suggested that that, that was a good thing. The fan was a piece of Doctor yeah. and had a degree of power, but he was speaking as a fan, not as an actor playing the Doctor. Mm. So fan opinions do do influence the series. So it's I, I the, don't, da- the I danger don't, is there that yeah. you send somebody down the wrong road, you know, and if they if you listen too much, sometimes yeah. you've got to. Yes, yeah, but that's but, but, but that's, I think, I think that's give, the responsibility give, of the showrunner to. Use his his or her discretion. Something I've become sensitive to now is is knowing that the person who's in the driving seat, you've got to let them have their artistic mm. vision, yeah, and not try and derail that because no. it's it undermines the whole artistic process. Yeah, obviously, Dot Two being what it is that we'll, we'll probably touch on this in a minute. Is, you know, there, there is a, a remit for it. There is a template, like you say, it's got a job to do, but equally being the organic thing that it is you're not going to get new ideas if you don't let people try something different so i don't i don't have a problem with people thinking they have ownership over the program and expressing their opinion about the program so long as they don't do it abusively supportive well even even if it's sort of criticizing the program Mm. i think it's it's down to the show as part of the showrunner's job or the creative person's job to have have enough self will and enough self confidence to do it their own way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying don't question ideas. it if it's if you know it's healthy. It's yeah. a healthy debate. Yeah, but that's all it is is a debate. Yeah, not... and of course, if your program's being watched by 20 million people worldwide, and 200 of them are absolutely screaming and shouting after every episode that you're doing it wrong, that's still 0.01 percent of the yeah. people are watching it. But also, this isn't a, this isn't a new thing. So Conan Doyle brought. Sherlock Holmes back because of the outcry when mm-hmm. he killed him off, and even in Shakespeare's time, you'd have a live audience in the Globe, and if it's a crap play, <clears throat> they would like, they would boo whilst the play is going on, and mm-hmm. you don't get that here. I mean, you get people tweeting whilst the show is actually on the air, mm-hmm. but that's pretty that that's pretty immediate. Doctor Who, um, good and bad, kept the flame alive in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They did by writing books. They did by this, that, and the other. All these little tiny things that people looking at Doctor Who nowadays probably didn't know existed yeah. in those periods. They were still there, and there was a fan base there, and some of them weren't great, mm. and some of them were good. But, you know, by Russell T. Davis knew this. He, but, wouldn't, he wouldn't necessarily have brought back but, the show but I don't think, completely, I, yeah, I completely don't, from scratch, I don't thinking think, that the entire world's going to go for I, it. He did know there's going to be a core base of people yeah. going to watch to boost those numbers initially. Must I don't think done. keeping the flame alive has 
is a kind of a cause to reward people for doing it because yeah. they were given the opportunity to write books that. and of course they yeah. would they would yeah. go for it i mean yeah fans and actually wrote, some of those people end up writing anyway for the yeah. series yeah but yeah it's just the fact those that books were selling a handful of thousand copies yeah, I know. The but Return of the TV series had nothing to do with the new adventures and the BBC books and that. No, it would have not, happened Not anyway. to do with that, no. To do with the fact that Russell T. Davis is a fan mm. himself. It and was the basis the, of the, the team, teams back, Being pulled together. But he know. wasn't stupid. He knew that there were going to be millions of people that were going would be interested in that first season of Doctor Who alone. But he knew that he knew that because he was a television professional rather than a fan. He knew that this was a, a bit this of a, was bit a, of a fan base. This was as well. It must be. I don't. I don't know. When the I, TV movie was on in 1996, it got over nine million viewers in Britain. And had it not been for Fox and the American thing, and the fact that the, the deal that was written down gave Fox, I think it was three years to say yes or no. If it hadn't been for that, the BBC would have carried on there and then. Hmm. But Fox. But, didn't say yes, and the BBC had to wait. By which time, you know, the horses left the yeah. But didn't stable. Uh, didn't it's the guy who brought it back? What was his name again? Philip Sigal. He was a fan, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. We're not talking about whether the people who are making it are fans. We're no, talking but about. What I mean is, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't have come back. I can't see a non-fan bringing Doctor Who back. Maybe I can't see it because I've no. Seen but you're it. you're talking about an entirely different subject, which is the return of Doctor Who. Did it need to be in the public consciousness? In which case, 9 million viewers for the TV movie, Curse of Fatal Death, got even more and was a loving homage to Doctor Who and made people think fondly of it. And these are people who are not buying the new adventures and aren't buying Doctor Who magazine. Those are the people you've got to appeal to. Russell T. Davis was a fan, did write a new adventure, like 10 years almost before he brought Doctor Who back. Those things were irrelevant. Okay, but, just... but there's another element to this that also needs to be thought about. The fact that you're getting these repeat seasons of things on BBC Two and Channel Four, the fact that you're suddenly getting guides to the series. Initially, you had the programme guide by Jean-Marc Lafissier, which had short praises and cast lists, not even full credits lists for these programs that. but then you get House Stammers and Walker doing the um, 60s, 70s, 80s and the handbooks. But I think it came back despite those things. No, 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 no. I'm going back to the subject of the podcast, not what Lee was talking about. Right. Uh, in terms of the subject of the podcast, you've got in the 1990s people documenting Doctor Who and by documenting the behind the scenes of Doctor Who what they're doing is making sense of the story of Doctor Who in terms of its non-fiction. And then things like the new adventures and things like the later Target books, which are expanded. And just the fact that the Target collection exists is trying to make sense of the fictional story of Doctor Who, which has always changed every time you've got a new producer in. But suddenly histories of the programme are... taking the entire 26 years of Doctor Who and turning it into a single story that makes sense, as long as you allow for the developments. So when Doctor Who comes back, and suddenly it's no longer this historic thing, but this fluid thing that's in motion and ongoing, what 
I would suggest that mm-hmm. what fans want from Doctor Who, and the question we're asking is, what do fans want from Doctor Who? We're not really talking about how fans behave towards Doctor Who. That's a part of the conversation. But what I want to address is what do fans want? And obviously this is going to vary from individual to individual. But I would say there is an underlying sense of wanting Doctor Who to add up and to make sense, despite the fact that every episode is written by a different writer from the last episode, despite the fact that every three, four, six, whatever number of years, you've got a new producer, a new showrunner. Well, that's a kind of a paradox in a, it is in a, a fan's mind, <clears throat> I think, because they we want it to be a continuous series. They want the new series to be the same story as the old series. Mm-hmm. So you, Lee, are very keen on seeing on seeing continuity and and seeing it not contradicting the old series. Um but but at the same time well, I, th- I think well, so. so well, you, you, the t- other podcasts. you yeah, you <laughs> tend to be the one that picks up on Let's on, have the Ice Warriors. On sort of yeah, on kind of things that contradict previous stories. You tend yeah. to be the one that sensed. I think I've, I think I've, I have. To, you have to give in to yes. Doctor Who. Yeah. It's not because, Star Trek. It because, can't keep that confidence. Because the other the other thing so the other thing we do is we we tend to draw a clean line between the old series and the new series at the same time as seeing them as the same. So we talk mm. about the classic series mm. and the new series, and, and, that, and that in a way is to insulate ourselves against what you were talking about the old series the classic series is the one that's been documented and is the one that has if it's talked about in the magazine it tends to be sort of the historian writers mm-hmm. writing about malcolm hulk communism and it tends to be the interesting sort of period pieces and the new ones tend to be ben cook talking doing his interminable interviews that reveal too much but when we do so when we look at the classic series because it's fixed mm. we tend to think of it as having a single tone and a single story that runs through the whole thing, despite the fact that we will also point out where it changes. But what we're not allowing the new series to do is change in the same way. We kind of uh, have a certain resistance to the new series trying new things, changing new tones, trying out new tones and styles we tend to resist the new series doing things that the classic series didn't do. Even though if you take any single point in the classic series and look what's ahead of you in the classic series Mm -hmm. against what's behind you in the classic series, ahead of you will be the classic series doing things that the classic series hadn't hitherto to that point done. It's just that we didn't document the classic series until after it had done all those things. So we don't necessarily notice that certain things that are in the latter parts but, of it weren't in the earlier. But there was still, I mean, there was a, a sort of similar resistance to change with classic viewers as well. In the 1980s? No, no, before the, before the 1980s. Well, with, I mean, that's where the criticism of Deadly Assassin comes in. And that's Deadly where, Assassin is... And 19- you'd imagine that if there were voices, if, if the viewers had a broader voice, <clears> then the change to Patrick Troughton for a few weeks well, would yeah. have caused disconcert. If you look Deadly at Assassin's the, letter, the, the first instance to, of it, but yeah. that is ex- well, it's not the first first instance. It's the first it's the first sort of instance we have access to. So I think the viewership of Doctor Who. Is, so fandom wasn't born in the nineteen seventies. Fandom was born when Doctor Who started. It just became it just became more accessible. Well, the, the, well it depends how you're defining fandom. If you're talking about people who enjoy the program, 
Well, as against not, people who we shouldn't go back into the well, defined no, exactly. tangent subject. So for the purposes of this, fandom is an obsessive thing, I said it? yes. Yeah. So we're Dal- talking so about people Dalek, who identify so, as fans. So Dalek Mania was probably the first, the first outbreak of of serious fandom. Well, children, f- but people buying toys and. But that's not what we're talking about. Okay. I mean, is it? Well, I'm, about, I'm, su- I'm suggesting that what fans, what fans want now isn't necessarily different from what fans want then, which is what you were talking about. Which you is said, a program. Yeah, you yeah, said that there was a shift in the 1980s of fan expectations. I'm suggesting there wasn't a shift in the 1980s. There's definitely a shift well, in accessibility, though. To there's a definite shift in in what in the voices of the the, the visibility of fans' views in mm-hmm. the 1980s. So we're starting to see. You could almost read their argue it starts with a magazine starting. Well, I think it started before that. The magazine didn't start till after the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. I'm talking about not organised fandom as such, but fandom that exists within organised structures. Mm. So I'm not saying if 20 million people are watching Doctor Who, there are 20 million different views on what Doctor Who should be. I'm talking about people who identify as fans, who associate with other fans who share their views on social media platforms in places for other fans to see and debate those things. So I'm talking about... Okay, so the equi- the equivalent of the 1960s would be groups of children watching the, the first Dalek story, going and talking in the playground, playing Doctor Who. Okay, I take your it. point. So that's, There's uh, an equivalent. No, I think it'll but... be the next one. So when they go and see the Daleks... Kind of trundling around in the next episode, and they go, "Well, that yeah. wasn't as good as the last one." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they did. But also, there's a difference in age as well. So it's when, when they get into their teenage years, they'll start saying, "Well, evil, good. evil of the Daleks," or they really, they really jumped the shark. <clears throat> they wouldn't say that, <laughs> but jumped the shark with what they've had before. I'm just saying that I don't think. Oh, that take your point. There are equivalents, but I'm talking, I'm talking about fandom now. Yeah. That's on the internet, on social media, on forums. That's, yeah. that's, yeah, so you didn't that's, get that's fandom on social media. That is also the difference, isn't it? Because we are living in a different age, as you say. Everybody's quite vain and wants to be heard but, before they die, right? But in the 60s, with your kids talking in the playground, it's a much yes. smaller insular thing. It doesn't go any further than the playground, all your mums and dads around the corner, right? But then in the 80s, yeah. like Jao said, it becomes Doctor more accessible, it's bigger, takes it there's more politics involved in it, there are people voicing their opinions through magazines, there are people voicing their opinions quite nasty, nasty in nasty ways towards the people making it. Yeah. But I don't think that really necessarily happened in the 60s, apart from when they went around asking people, well, what do you well, this think is, of Doctor Who? I mean, this isn't about Doctor Who fandom, though, this is about social media in general and people's opinions. But social opinions media being... now, people's opinions are, you know, you put anything down on social yeah, media and yeah. you expect the world to listen to you because and this is right. a fundamental so, part of it, is that by participating in these things in a way where you know it's getting back to the programme makers, sending a copy of Doctor Who Bulletin to John Nathan Turner mm-hmm. by Gary Lee, or writing on social media where you know people who are involved in the programme, if not necessarily the actual showrunner, but other people who work in the programme or who work on the Doctor magazine, are reading what you're saying, gives you the belief that you have no matter how tiny a fraction of a percent, but you have some kind of possibility of affecting what's going to happen on the screen. Mm-hmm. That's what's changed. Yes, in, and to Dwaz, that is what fans want. Yeah, the Dwaz in 1976, yeah, with that review of Deadly Assassin, 
that was the that was a turning point, and that's what really you know expanded exponentially in the 1980s with Doctor Who Bulletin and the fanzines. That's the point at which fandom knew that their voices would be heard by the people making the program. Just to create... that's what gives you the impression that you can affect how that program's made, yeah. even if it's a false impression. Although in the 1980s, there's a kind of a glitch in in the in the, the existence of Ian Levine. Because Ian, well, Ian Levine is the kind of conduit between fandom and the, the, the producer. That's not a glitch, because now we're talking about Philip Seagal being a fan making the programme and Russell T Davis being a fan making the yes, programme. Yes, but actually, you think, about that, you think Andrew Smith, we should have him on here. Yeah. These are fans being involved yes, in making in, the programme. Yes, but Ian Levine, is talking about. Ian Levine isn't involved in making the programme. He's just got the voice of fandom behind him, and he's a conduit between the fans and he is the producer in He's making the programme in the 1980s. He goes through every script for about three years and says, no, you can't have that, you'll have to rewrite that scene. Yes. If that's not yeah. being involved in making the programme... Uh, mostly with continuity as well, making yes. sure that things aren't... Yes, yeah, I'm yeah. aware, of, I'm aware yeah. of that, but he's not actually, apart from very rare occasions, actually coming up with the stories. Well, or deciding on the tone. That's as close as a fan has got to actually making the programme in those days. But I think that also, Andrew Smith, maybe. But mm-hmm. I think that also skews skews the perception of fandom in the 1980s. I think that's, that fans that's a kind a of a complicated element. And I think after he's gone, with with you know literally after well, he's gone, as... it becomes a little bit more and with the McCoy stories well no but then he, for three years but then when Doctor Who comes back in 96 and when it comes back in 2005 and when it changed hands in 2010 yes. each one of those people is a fan just yes. like Ian Levine was yeah, for making think, the programme I think Seagal and Russell T Davis and Moffat they're not driven by their fandom I think they're no, driven by their professionalism but the perception of people who know what happened with Ian Levine is if fans can make the programme, then fans have a say in how the programme is made, yeah. which is undeniable because Russell T Davis is a fan who has a bloody great say in how the mm. programme's made. The thing about the 80s is it has given fandom as a whole several perceptions about Doctor Who, one of which is that if the viewing figures are falling, you're looking at either a hiatus or the result of a hiatus is going to be a cancellation. And that still be, comes up time after time after time. It'd be interesting to see if, could a, could a non-fan make it now? And I think they probably could. I think it's got to the stage where a non-fan could come in and be a showrunner and produce quite an interesting an interesting series. It hasn't because Chris Chibnall's in, but after the five years of Chris Chibnall, we're slowly running out of these kind of, these kind of, well, no, the next Old generation is coming up. You'll have, you'll have. Um, this answers your question. What what do fans want? Um, they Jamie want, Matheson. They want to make agree. the program, and you know, ever since you a fan could write a book, or Andrew Smith has written a script for for Doctor Who in the eighties. People want to. We're all fans of Doctor Who in here. Yeah. Not, we are, but and we're all creatively interested in writing or doing something with Doctor Who. There's not one part of us that, if it was offered to us on a plate, would say, no, we don't want to make the programme. I'm sure we'd want to if we could possibly do it. So, so every, every book that's made, every big finished uh, CD, every BBV that's been created, and all the stuff, millions of films on the internet and audio yeah. stories on the internet, everybody just wants to write Doctor Who. But now they just happen to have a platform to do it, yeah. which but, I think is quite good. So there's a, there's a, contradiction. a conduit. There's a contradiction inside 
most fans' heads, or most fans' minds, including my own, I guess, is that you want to be involved and that you want to shape the series, but you're a fan, so you're effectively a poacher. Yeah, operate <laughs> operating in in yeah, a gamekeeper's land. You want you want <laughs> like that. well that that's what I mean. Fans yeah. are textual poachers. So yeah, absolutely. You want the food, but you also don't want the bother of having to actually manage the livestock. Mm. So we we write fan fiction. Yeah, and and we couldn't do that if we were on the inside because we'd have the pressure of having to write. Mm. something that's actually commercially viable rather yeah. than a load of old tosh which is just for ourselves and I'm not entirely convinced that any one of us so, even but, though we were given jobs could actually do it so we, no. yeah exactly so we want we want kind of we want control over it but we also want to keep our distance from it yeah. and we're constantly moving between the two the two points and it can drive you mad but in the, the sense and that's where a lot of the frustration comes from I think well and the other part of the frustration the thing that Lee didn't get to is because you look at Doctor Who and you think, I write fan fiction or whatever, or I would write fan fiction, or even if I just write fan fiction in my head, you are developing your idea of what you think Doctor Who should be. And when Stephen Moffat or Russell T. Davis or whoever doesn't write that version of Doctor Who on the screen, even if just subconsciously you're thinking, well, that's not the Doctor Who the way I'd do it. Therefore, on some level, you're thinking... Well, that version of Doctor Who is the wrong version of Doctor Who. Even if just subconsciously it's in the back of your mind, that's not what I would do. Mm. And that is a factor that plays into how you then, you know, experience and enjoy the episodes as they're produced. Yes. We we, yeah, we had to really <laughs> we had to really take a step back when Russell D. Davis was writing, especially in those first five, six episodes, because everything was a surprise. Do you remember when you first watched it and the, the, you know, thinking, Oh, first space creature and it's a pig? I mean he knew he knew he was playing with us. And uh, but you're kind of going, No, it's okay. It's a bit bizarre. Farting alien, space pig. I'm going with this because it's Doctor Who. I don't care what's coming next. It's still a bit rubbish. <laughs> no, at the time, I didn't think it was rubbish at the time. I thought it was, no, just, I thought it was, it was really funny and really different and really exciting. And, and I thought, yeah. I don't care. Do I really liked it. Yeah, That's my favourite period of Russell T. Davis. <laughs> I liked it because I thought, actually, people who aren't Doctor Who fans will like this and that makes me happy that yeah. it's going to be popular. Exactly. I wasn't sure yeah. about it, but I don't think that was me talking with my Doctor Who fan. On the no. side. It's me realising that it's not written for me. And it's the same reaction well, I had. Well, that's it. You've said it. It's the, same, it's the same reaction I had to Doctor Who magazine. Suddenly, <laughs> the not the quality, but the, the pitch of the writing went down in age really dramatically. Yeah. And, and that's the point. I mean, I was disappointed because I bought Doctor Who magazine to read... To read these articles, and suddenly I'm reading these articles. Mm. I but I didn't. That, I didn't write letters in or complain because. <laughs> but you've said it in a nutshell. Mm. You consciously thought this is not being written for me. Yeah, and that's it. You have an idea then, even if you're not sure what that idea is, yeah. of what Doctor Who that's written for you would be like. Another thing you've touched on as well. I mean, going back to the writers, the people who are making the programs is they are writers. Just an example, writers first. Dot two fans second. Yeah. You are when there's a paycheck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Completely. Hmm. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so, but, <laughs> oh, yeah. I was going to say, what that, that I'm writing, I got. Because when I'm writing Doctor Who, you know, <laughs> for me, it's a play park. I mean, it's, it's a big 
Yeah, not being not being not being paid is actually liberating. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. If we were paid for the seasons of war stuff, then actually we would have been, you know, paralysed. Yeah. Parallels with fear. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. But the other process that happens in it is, you know, you may get all these outlandish things that they could never do in the series, never would do in the series. But then you get certain characters which you loved in the series, and the thing you want to do is nail it and emulate and, it. And at the risk of bringing this up, this is the this is the big thing recently with the the Lethbridge Stewart books, right? That have caused controversy because. Well, controversy or not. Well, I don't. I don't know how much. I mean, it's so they're complaining about the no. the, the brigadier's grandfather being in the series, and they've issued a sort of a formal complaint. No, have they not? No, blown out of all proportion. No, but I read the complaint. Yes, he was letting off steam. He yes. wrote it. He posted it, and then yeah. when he realised what he'd done, he took it straight back down again. Right. Okay. He was just letting off steam. Yes. Uh, but I but don't agree still, with the but that's still laying off. That's still, I mean, whether it's a story or not, it's still an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, but the Lethbridge Stewart books are written for money, and they are to do with copyright and ownership. Must be frustrating if you're trying yeah. to establish something, though, and they obviously are. But yeah, but they're also fan, they're right. also fan I mean, writers, so it's an opportunity to try and integrate yeah. something. You have to. I mean, what about to, all these people who've written all these? God knows how many extended Star Wars universe books before the mm. new films came out. Yes, it's yeah. all gone. But in a you sense, know, so in a sense, look at the the whole of the original Doctor Who series is contradictory. I mean, it's a yeah. mass of contradictions, and half the fun of the new series have been sort of slotting in things into yeah. those contradictions, yeah. and the and the new adventures and the missing the missing adventures literally do slot themselves in mm. to gaps in the old series. So these contradictions and gaps, they're not. They're not things to to talk about copyright or complain about. They're yeah. things to sort of think. Well, we're going to have to adjust to this new this new world, and well, adjusting to a new world is what C- Doctor Who's about. Uh, series six the other day, you know, and he said, "Time can be rewritten." <laughs> You're not yeah. frigging kidding me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the question is then, and we're talking about fans who associate and therefore go on social media and stuff the more vocal end of fandom. Not necessarily the more vocal end of fandom, but including the ones who log on and literally, after an episode's been on, will go on Gallifrey Base and give it a score out of 10 and won't even bother posting in the thread, but that's the level of their fandom. But if don't you... We do, don't we do that? Don't we, don't we watch one and then score it straight afterwards? Yes. Okay. But we talk about it. I'm talking about people who don't talk about it. Oh, I see. If so you got to the that. end of my sentence, Lee, <laughs> if you'd have listened as far as the end of the sentence... Oh, it's nothing more annoying than being interrupted. <clears throat> but people who identify as fans with a capital F, then, not just viewers, but people who identify as fans, what do they want from Doctor Who? I'm not saying what do individuals' fans want from Doctor Who, then, in terms of... You know, this is or is not the way I would have written it. This is or is not written for me. En masse, can we generalise or can we look at a couple of examples of things and try and generalise an idea of fandom's desires? I'll throw you two things out so that you've got at least uh, an idea of a starting point for what the question I'm asking is. I like to be surprised... Some fans like to see a lot of continuity. Some fans don't like to see any continuity. Some fans like to know 
what's going to happen, like to be able to predict what's going to happen, because that makes them in some way feel safer about the series, because it's doing the things they expect of it. Of all these things, is there, or, or is this the answer simply that fandom en masse doesn't? Because I think fandom being an en masse thing, it is a thing. It looks at the programme differently from casual viewers who just tune in. And it does look at the programme differently from the six-year-olds who are watching it who've got no idea about the behind-the-scenes production. So I don't know whether there is a case to say that fandom en masse does have... Fandom en masse wants the series to continue. Because if, without the series continu- that, continuing... So fandom en masse... Well, that's the starting point. So fandom en masse wants viewing figures. They want high viewing figures. Um... So that's, I mean, that's that's kind of the foundation of what of what they want, and it's the argument. Though? The argument is how those viewing figures are increased, not not a sort of an in, an ingrained complex psychological thing within a fan's mind. It's different opinions about how viewing figures can go up, and some fans think it's about darkness and seriousness, and making it making it a cutting-edge television. So well, this some is going fans, to be the contradiction Some fans feel that it's about bringing in children as much as possible, so constantly returning to the farting aliens renewing periodically. The, uh, renewing and it's probably the... halfway between the, between the two, which is what um, Stephen Moffat's sort of... Stephen Moffat kind of ages the series and then utens this at utens, makes the series younger and then ages it again. Well, refreshes makes it. Younger, it. Again, Maybe, refreshes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there is, there is the contradiction that fans <laughs> would like the program to be massively successful, so it keeps getting renewed, but would also like it to be a cult series of the. Yeah, there are some, there are some fans who, and I wouldn't understand it, want the series to end, but they're li- they're like the they're like the angel in Ghostlight, <laughs> who becomes so obsessed with. Hating change yeah, that yeah. he actually threatens to destroy the entire. It, it depends on to what degree you allow nostalgia mm. to control your view on it. Yeah, isn't it? Well, it's is about what, this is what I was going to get to is that you've got different strata, you've got fan stratas going on here. Well, maybe that's not the right description, but anyway, you've got fandom as a whole. There are millions of individual people all swaying and moving a bit like sparrows or whatever you know and you think they've got an opinion and they've got this and they've got but it starts from somewhere someone starts it and then it, it kind of you know gets bigger and bigger and like a snowball rolling down the mountain yeah so it gets bigger and bigger but the my point is that everybody's different and everybody what a fan wants is they want it to be like the first time they watched Doctor Who when they were enjoying it so it's like the baby sees the mum's face and goes you're my mum so when you see your first doctor and you really enjoy that series like well that's my doctor I mean I love Tom Baker Tom Baker's my first doctor I can't think of anything I, I, I wish it was like Tom Baker all the time but it can't be it has to change but you know other fans are less malleable than I am and will look at it and go well it should always be like Tom Baker that was the golden period why can't it be and therefore you will forever criticise what's coming next so not but that. luckily, in this day and age, or unluckily, you can find millions of other people with the same opinion, and then you all group together, and that's how it is. But fans want it to be the like the first time they that's watched the, it. That's the that's the the pain of being a fan is nostalgia can only come with distance, mm. and I'm finding this with the new series 
that I'm liking. So I'm looking forward to watching uh, the God Complex or even Rebel Flesh or because there's distance now. So I'm actually nostalgic for those times. So now I'm watching watching, a few years ago. I'm watching the latest episodes and thinking, well, I don't have this feeling of nostalgia for these. Obviously not because they're new. And, yeah. and that's what fans should be doing is maybe what we're doing that sounds a bit high mind, doesn't it but it does it's a good idea to do it like that way is to you know to watch it you know enjoy it have your opinions then rest it and then yeah. go back and watch it five years later and you get that nostalgic buzz, fuzzy or, feeling or watch it and accept that that is the finished article now and that that is what you will still have in five ten fifteen and fifty years yeah. the same as Death to the Daleks when that was broadcast, became the finished article of that. So what you really need to do is accept that when an episode comes on the telly, it's not something that you might have shaped or feel you ought to have been able to shape, but just accept it in the way you'd accept a Shakespeare play if you picked up a complete work of Shakespeare. And actually you will have your favourites and you have the choice to watch or not watch, say, Time Lash. I'm I'm not sure there's such a thing as a fixed article. I don't think any of these things are fixed. I don't think Death of the Daleks is fixed. I don't think Shakespeare plays are fixed. You're because, talking uh, about in a philosophical sense of what you bring to it. Well, yes, but... But I'm talking about how, what's but, on the screen. But but what's on the screen doesn't make any sense unless it's got a viewer. And as soon as you have a viewer, you have somebody... You talk about quantum drama or something, what you? Yeah. Yeah, if, well, yeah exactly. If, <laughs> if something, so what's on the screen doesn't doesn't have any weight it's all no. to do with the viewer watching it yeah and in that case it's all to do with where the viewer is so if the viewer is in 20, 2026 yeah then they'll be watching it in a different way to a viewer in 2012 yeah so the, yeah. the thing on the screen is always changing because the thing on the screen only makes has any meaning within no, the brain the thing the on the screen doesn't yeah. change your perception of it yeah. changes so what you're saying is i'm talking about the thing on the screen being there's fixed. N- but there's nothing to say about the thing on the screen that's that's just that's that's nothing. It's the it's what happens in the brain when you see it. So are you saying that if a fan walks in a wood and Doctor Who's on TV at home, is it really on? Is that? So I got a bit lost. Sorry. <laughs> yes, he's saying it's not. I don't, really but on. it's not. It's not a. It's not a kind of a, an abstract idea. So you said it's that abstract. before a program's broadcast, I mean, it's, it's like Schrodinger's cat. But it's. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's simultaneously shit and good at the same it's, time it's, until it's watched. It's the, reason, it's the reason why we're still watching things and the reason why Shakespeare is still performed <laughs> isn't because it was good then and we want to recapture that. It's because it's constantly changing. But the difference between Shakespeare and Doctor Who is Doctor Who set in stone like Jair says no, no, on no, TV. No, no, it's not. It's not. But Shakespeare is a yes. play which yeah. can be... But the text is... No, but Jair's talking about the process that... that... I'm talking People about that what's it's made written it down, what it is. what's in the can is fixed. Yes. You're talking about perception. But, but I think You're talking about I'm, the no, way perception alters according I'm, to I'm time saying what's, distance. what's in the can is just, is just almost worthless. In no, terms it's of, not worthless because you wouldn't have a perception of it if it didn't exist. That's its value. So it's, yeah, but there's no, there's no. You're talking about acceptance though, aren't you? You're talking yes. about accepting the fact that the thing is made, you've got no influence on it, and therefore, yeah, you're, you're right as well, because you're, you're saying yeah. about the perception, the thing Once breathes seen, through yes. people's yeah. reactions to yeah. it. And I think what JR is saying in... is that 
people need to accept that now in these days of social social media and having an opinion about everything, that they that don't... line of dialogue is always going to be in that episode. Yes. That actor's performance is always going to be in that episode. So what, that resolution is always going so to be. So what in you're that episode. you're saying is it's pointless, and I agree with it. It's pointless. People starting a petition asking yeah. for the Last Jedi to be expunged from the record. So Schrodinger's Schroding cats that. like arguing that there should be a dog in there, but the cat's yeah. already in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can't you can't change the source material. Yeah. But you can change your perception of it, and your perception of it is more interesting. It's more valuable than the source material itself. Exactly. And, and, so fans, I, and fans can add to the, and can, fans can add to the source material by writing their own fiction but, based on it. That's but how we're it not breeds, talking. Yeah. yeah. But they, we're talking about the source material. Yeah. Uh, my point was part of your perception of the source material has to be that that line of dialogue is in it. And always that's, will be in it. But that's and so on. That's kind of falls into the bleeding obvious. It because, doesn't fall because, into the bleeding because obvious unless, if unless you, you put your fingers time. in your ears like Lee does with trailers, then you're it doesn't it's on the screen. But if you spend any time on Gallifrey Base well, or various groups on Facebook no. or in places like Planet Mondas and all this kind of stuff, it's not that bleeding obvious because okay. half the conversation in these places is they did that wrong, they should have done this, this is what I would have done. Okay, well that, but that's, that's but that's not that's not uh, denying what's on the screen. That's their no. perception of what's on the screen. No, and it's their not critique of it. It's not denying what's on the screen, and this is the point. It's not accepting what's on the screen as bona fide. It's not. It's not. I wish they'd done that. Otherwise, it's they should have done that. Otherwise, yeah, and that's a different I, thing. I read it only yesterday. Somebody saying Love and Monsters should never have been made. Somebody saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's perfectly acceptable to say I don't like Love and Monsters, yeah. but to say it should never have been made is an entirely different yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And I, and and this is my point: is that once it has been made, the question of should or should not becomes moot. It's no longer a discussion worth having. You have to talk about the merits of what has been made. Because going back to the classic series, nobody says the Censorite should never have been made. Nobody says the Mutants should never have been made. Nobody says the Invisible Enemy should never have been made. They talk about the merits or lack of merits of these things. But they don't... And obviously I'm generalising because, you know, I'm sure the people listening will find examples of people saying exactly what I'm saying. But generally speaking... My observation of fandom is that in terms of the classic series, they talk about whether they like it or don't like it. In terms of the new series, the conversation as often as not is they talk about whether it has the right to exist or not, which is not a question that they ask of the classic series. I might be wrong. Is it a bit like football? In as much as it, it's nobody complains about the teams they picked in the 60s because everyone just thinks about 1966. Well, everybody just accepts that everyone's those are the teams. A, yeah. Everyone's got an opinion about who should be playing what. Well, it's exactly the same thing. Mm. You can't alter what happened in the past, but what's happening in the present is alterable. So by having a voice in the conversation, you automatically think that you're a part of the of what might be able to alter that thing. Which is a healthy thing. I mean, it's the thing I always loved about punk, was that you had this, this idea that anyone could do it. And I do think that's healthy. It's a creatively healthy thing, and it's something that's <clears> missing now. I think, but 
but it's working in other ways, like with things like Doctor Who. Where well, I've always said about things like politics or whatever, is if you really want to change something in politics, then you become a politician and get yourself into a position whereby you'll be able to make that change. You don't mm. shout at other politicians. No. You become Or one. you go to the other end of things, which is something I'm really getting into, which is you make changes in your own life. And that's probably mm. the most effective way, apart from becoming a politician, is just to kind of affect the people directly around you. And this is part of the issues that surround fans who become showrunners, is that Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat did get themselves into a position whereby they'd be able to make Doctor Who. Out of God knows how many fans, that's two people. But they proved their worth as writers and programme mm. makers before. before. Yeah, they became politicians in order to have an effect on politics, mm. essentially. Except we don't get the vote. Well, you vote with your feet. You either turn the television on or not. Absolutely. And if it loses yeah. viewing figures, you know, like if Doctor Who went down to a viewing figure of 50,000 people on BBC One on a Saturday night, it wouldn't be being made. Or it wouldn't be being made by Stephen Moffat or Chris Chibnall or whoever. So that is our version of having the vote, I guess. Mm. Shall we leave this now and throw it open to the listeners and come back to it in like two or three or four weeks okay. and see what they come up with and see if this conversation's got somewhere more to go? All right, then. Well, there you go, then. Blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk or if you want to find me on Twitter, jr underscore Southall or if on Facebook, we're Doctor Who, the Blue Box Podcast. If you've got something to say about this conversation or an area that you think we've missed or that you'd want us to go into, we will do this again in a couple of weeks or so. Write and let us know where you think we're wrong, where you think we're right, what you think we've missed, whatever. Or they can send us checks so we can all go to the Caribbean and wear Bermuda shorts and Hawaiian shirts. Yeah, a lottery-type lottery check. A lottery love, type size check yeah. will stop us from having yeah. the conversation. I love yeah. Because we'll you, retire from the podcast. If you want to stop us talking, <laughs> send, us, send us a check with at least eight figures on it. Equally, yeah. more subject matter as well. Anything yeah, else they want us to talk about. Exactly. Right, before we go, I've got a film to review and a couple of audios. Um, let's do the audios first because they're Doctor Who. One of which was the latest Paul Sprague winner at Christmas, O Tenenbaum, which I'm not talking about yet, but I should have because I reviewed it a few weeks ago. Yeah, Big Finish has got this thing about... I mean, I know we did it, but we're a weekly podcast. So it, we put out a, an episode on basically Christmas Eve that had three Christmas stories in it. But Big Finish had this Christmas story, and they put it out on like the day before Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve or something, which means that probably more than half of the people are going to listen to that aren't going to have had the chance to listen to it before Christmas. If you put out a Christmas story, wouldn't you just put it out sort of like early December so that people can enjoy it in the run-up to Christmas? That seemed like an odd decision. O Tenenbaum is like a... It was a nice idea. It was, The idea of it was to do an annual story, but to actually set it in the series. But what's happened? Sorry, I'm so sorry. I I I thought O Tenable was the name of the writer. <laughs> I was thinking, what coincidence? That's like a Christmas thing. I just realised it. It's, it's named after the Christmas sorry, Carol. Yeah. 
which appears in the story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd lost it. It's an annual story that they're trying to set in the series. Okay. And it's a nice idea. <laughs> but because the annual stories are so different from the series, the annual story kind of loses what makes it an annual story. And the sort of TV series side of it ends up looking a bit silly. So it doesn't really quite work. The first Doctor Adventures, the David Bradley and Co. ones, I also had the review copy of that. They've done exactly the same thing. They should have said, right, this is for entirely different people. Let's do something, not necessarily like the Dalek movies, but let's do something that replicates what the Dalek movies did and make this an alternative universe. But instead, what they've done is try to plug David Bradley and co. into series one, season one, in between... I'm not, I couldn't swear, but I would have said listening to it, I would have judged that it was set in between the Sensorites and the Reign of Terror. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work like that, because that is just begging you to notice... I think it's a lot to ask of the audience, if I'm honest. But it's just begging you to notice from start to finish that these aren't William Hartnell, Jacqueline no. Hill. It doesn't work. But if those bits of the audience that would have sat through the Sensorites or... But yeah, I suppose the majority they should of the remake the censor rights with with the new cast. Yeah. Oh yeah, but but in terms of this audio Stop drama, it. yeah, especially as you've got things like the Companion Chronicles, which are doing stories set in mm. these times anyway, which are O Tenenbaum is essentially an example of. Mm. It doesn't really work because they don't do impersonations of the characters. So the Barbara is completely different from Jacqueline Hill's Barbara. Mm, mm. The Susan is completely different. And they're all good. Barbara's the one who comes off the weakest just because Jacqueline Hill was so strong in the role. But they're all good. You've got Julian Glover's son playing Ian. He's a fantastic actor and he's brilliant. David Bradley, uh, for my money, is wonderful as the first Doctor. But he's not doing a William Hartnell impersonation. So as soon as you plug them into two stories that could conceivably have happened mm. in season one, it just doesn't work. I think that, that's something that, that the audience themselves could make sense of if they want to. Well, I did. I gave it eight stars because despite the fact that I don't think it works, it is an absolutely fascinating listen to hear an entirely different first mm. TARDIS team mm. doing that. Mm. But they should have... My The example I gave was they should have plugged them into what Dennis Spooner might have done if he'd have set up the series instead of David Whittaker. That was the example I gave. It needed to be a slightly different universe than the one that David Whittaker set yeah. up for William Hartnell and Jacqueline Hill. It's an opportunity, Hartnell, it's an opportunity to do, do a, like a, a completely different beast in some respect. And the trouble is now, even if they do more of these, they've already made this decision so that opportunity's gone. Mm. And then it the should, trouble was it should have existed. It's all we're saying. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's Dodgy saying that it should have been this and yeah. it should have been well it'd be nice if they could have done it. Yeah. No, but this is yeah. outside of the series, this is big finish for all that they're licensed and everything else, it's fan fiction. Mm. You know. because uh, it's not on telly. Big Finish are no more or less licensed than well, essentially Big Finish, the their, Stewart books, Big Finish is their own thing. 
now so you can be a big Finnish fan yeah as opposed are. to a Doctor yeah, Who fan yeah. which which means that in terms of big Finnish they're not fan fiction in their relationship with Doctor Who they are fan fiction that exactly. happens yeah. to be commercial at the same time so they <laughs> like Lethbridge Stewart they have this sort of uneasy place of commercial and like the two sides of a fan's brain unlike and these first Doctor <laughs> Adventures I think have played just a little bit too safe They've, they've, it's like they've said, oh, we've got these new people, we'd better make sure it fits into season one, otherwise people will just say, what the hell are you doing? But actually, I think the the thing is, the what the hell are you doing is, what the hell are you doing putting these four actors into season one? Mm-hmm. And then you've got like an historical story. In season one and season two, the historical stories had Marco Polo, or they had Napoleon Bonaparte, or they had Richard the Lionheart. But the historical story here features a pretty small-scale event that probably most of the people listening won't have heard of and needs explaining by one of the characters, because nobody will ever heard of, set somewhere pretty nondescript and featuring nobody that had anything to do with anything. Which is all very well. If you're going to do a story that's a pure historical, that's a fine thing to do. But trying to do that in the style of season one, where you've got Marco Polo and Napoleon Bonaparte, that's something else about it that doesn't work. So it just, it sits very uneasily with what it's trying to do. Mm. My criteria is always, what is it trying to do? Does it succeed? And the point with this is, what is it trying to do? Plug four new actors into the TARDIS team that was season one. Does it succeed? No, because they're not the same people. You can't, you know, you can't do season one without William Hartnell and Jacqueline Hill and William Russell and Caroline Ford because they inform what season one is. Mm. You almost could do new versions of those serials, couldn't you? Mm. Yes, and then it would and give it a different tone. Yeah, and but and, and everybody listening, I would say, go out and listen to this yeah. because the mere fact that this exists. It is absolutely fascinating, and you won't regret listening to it. But probably come the end of it, you will think, well, that didn't really work, mm, mm. despite how much enjoyment you may have got from listening to it. Yeah, it's, yeah. Mm. Right, and finally, there's a film, The Monster Hunt, which is out on Blu-ray and DVD shortly after this podcast will go out, I think. Um in 2015, when it came out in China, it became China's biggest box office success. Uh, <laughs> it was replaced in 2016 by another film. It's finally made its way over here. Is it The Mermaid? Yes. The Mermaid film. Yes. Yeah. Along with the controversy about how it became China's biggest box office success. I Reading between the lines, I would say that what happened was it was so close to taking the record the film company themselves pushed it over the line. But because the film company pushed it over the line, now the story is, well, the film company were buying the tickets themselves. <clears throat> well, of course, the entire 260 million, or, no, 2.6 billion or whatever it is in ticket sales isn't entirely down to the film company buying tickets, right? <laughs> it's, it doesn't make any difference. It's a huge film. It's a Chinese children's film. It, it is tonally very different from what you'd get with a Western audience's children's film. 
it's kind of martial arts meets very cute monster designs. It's live action with CG animation creatures. It's about essentially the son of some... It's set in sort of ancient times. Monsters used to rule the earth, then mankind came along, and they didn't destroy the monsters entirely, but what they did was banish them to the other side of the mountains. And the borderlands are patrolled by what's called the Monster Hunt. I can't remember what it is. Monster Hunters patrol the borderlands. There have been no incursions from monsters for a long time, so people have become desensitised to the idea that monsters might come. And then one day, monsters do come, and of course there's no monster hunters around, no professional seasoned monster hunters around. So you've got a young couple, not a young couple at the start of the film, you get two young people, a young lad and a young girl, who suddenly find themselves thrust into the position of having to possibly defend the kingdom. Except those aren't the monsters who've come, so there's another story going on about what kind of monsters have actually fetched up on our side of the mountains and why it's a really entertaining film that I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed and can totally see why it was such a great success in China what you have to do when you sit down is like what Matt was talking about at the start of this podcast is you have to readjust your expectations and perceptions of what it is because it ain't remotely like the kind of kids films we have despite the fact that its director has worked almost exclusively on Western films like Shrek as a animation supervisor and has gone off to make his first directorial feature in China. It's interesting to see, because Ghibli, the studio Ghibli films, they're so obviously Japanese in terms of the mythology. Yeah, 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 you've got that sort of thing in there. <coughs> interesting to see, and, yeah, yeah with, with the rise of China as the principal consumer of films, whether we'll start picking up Chinese mythology as well as starting to learn Mandarin, but we'll start to adopt those things because we wouldn't have done it with Ghibli because mm. they're still, you know, they're still niche films. Mm. I wish they would. I yeah, wish it would bleed but part of the charm is it's sort of alien myths. There's something weird I, about it's complete escapism for me. But house moving spiritually castle. and yeah. entertainment-wise, it's it's mm. got these sensibilities about nature and. Mm. Uh, industry and keeping an eye on you know on trees and vegetation and all that yeah. sort of thing and keeping yeah. in contact with what yeah. it's just lovely there's a hint of that sort of thing in this because mm. I suppose it's such a generalisation and maybe it is poppycock but with eastern culture you do get more of a sense of spirituality because in the west obviously we've lost God more quickly than most other peoples around the earth seem to have. Mm. So, and when I say God, I don't mean God with a capital G, but God with a small g. So you still have an infusion of that kind of spirituality. Mm. Anyway, I, if you think you can stomach something that is, in certain places, fairly radically different. You said to me not to let any of my children see it. Oh, actually. well, yeah. Watch it first before you show it to children, because... Their idea of what's good for eight-year-olds might not be your idea of what's good for a six-year-old. So I've still or eight got memories old. of watching the Water Margin on mm. BBC Two and seeing somebody literally get sliced straight down the middle in half. Well, the martial arts in this are pretty much as violent and in your face as they would be in an eighteen certificate martial arts film. Obviously, there's less blood, and obviously, you don't get to see. Well, 
no, I won't say entirely that you don't get to see bits of buddies' bodies flying off and stuff because there actually is stuff like that in this. So I yeah. it, put it this way: it was a PG in the cinema, presumably on the assumption that you would be sitting there with your parents. It's a twelve on DVD, presumably on the assumption that kids pick up discs and put them in the machine themselves. Mm. So uh, I don't know. Thoroughly recommended. I guess actually, if you enjoyed Monkey, this oh, yeah. is not a million miles away from Monkey. Okay. Slightly soppier, although Monkey tended towards soppiness at times. So yeah, <laughs> that's obviously part of the whole thing. Right, next week we will do Curse of the Fatal Siren. <laughs> And then we'll come back to this week's subject again afterwards. But for now, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Ta-ra. So we're going to leave him at home <laughs> permanently in future. Uh, what am I doing?